Let's open our Bibles this morning to the Old Testament book of Ezra. Ezra, chapter 9. And if you're thinking, thinking Ezra, Ezra, uh, it's right before Nehemiah, right after 1st Second Chronicles, okay. Um, this uh, continues the series that we've been doing on uh, those passages that you don't usually hear preached on or that might be difficult and, uh, you know, none of us like to do hard things unless we have to do hard things. Um, so we're looking at a passage in which the prophet Ezra, prophet priest Ezra, comes and says, you've got to divorce all your wives. Okay? Now, uh, this is, as, as we'll see, this is a hard thing. This is uh, kind of out of the ordinary, uh, but there are reasons and purposes behind this, and we will see them in just a moment. I'm going to read quite a bit, so I'm not going to ask you to stand up today. But we have to read most of two chapters so that we understand the the context and what is going on here. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you, and and as we're about to read your word, we ask that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes and enliven our hearts and our minds. Give us understanding, Lord, not just to the black and white words on the page, but to the meaning there and how we are therefore to live because of it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm going to begin in Ezra chapter 9. I'm going to read through 9, and I'm going to, even though the the context of the story continues all the way through 10, I'm not going to read the last 15 verses of 10 because there's just nothing but names there. And I don't want you to think about halfway through the sermon, Randy really butchered those names. I can't believe that, okay? Uh, Just as an aside, I can remember when Jeff Smith was alive and he would come to praise and prayer and we get to the Old Testament passages where it had a lot of names and Jeff Smith just made it up as he went, okay? And and nothing slowed him down. He would read and just plow right through those names and those genealogies and just crank right through them and we said, how'd that sound? It was good, Jeff. You got them all right. That was it. Mm -hmm. Okay, Ezra chapter 9. Now when these things had been completed... The princes approached me, that would be Ezra, saying, The people of Israel and the priest and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands according to their abominations. Those are the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands." Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. And when I heard this matter, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. Now, this is not hyperbole. Okay? Now, the tearing of the clothes we've seen in plenty of places, but he pulls out some of his hair. Okay? And pulls out some of his beard. Now, for those of us who have had beards before and had our little kids yank on them, we know how sensitive our faces, facial hair is. So this is pretty serious. He is, he is broken because of the sin of the people. Verse 4. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. But at the evening offering, I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. 
And I said, oh, my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to thee, my God, for our iniquities have risen above our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And on account of our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity and to plunder and to open shame as it is this day. But now for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God. Now, just to stop here, they have been in exile, okay? Because of their sin, they were thrown out of their land for 70 years, and this is the beginning of coming back. And they've had this grace of the Lord bringing them back to Jerusalem, and this is what has happened. That's what he's referring to, verse 8. But now for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. For we are slaves, yet in our bondage, our God has not forsaken us. He has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments, which thou hast commanded by thy servants, the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from end to end and with their impurity. So now do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or their prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever." And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since thou, our God, has requited us less than our iniquities deserved and has given us an escaped remnant at this, shall we again break thy commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? Wouldst thou not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant or any who escape? O Lord God of Israel, Thou art righteous, for we have been left an escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before thee in our guilt, for no one can stand before thee because of this. Now now while Ezra was praying and making confession and weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly, men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehil, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility, but we will be with you. Be courageous and act. Then Ezra rose and made the leading priest and the Levites and all Israel take oath that they would do according to this proposal. So they took the oath. Then Ezra rose from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Elishab, Although he went there, he did not eat bread nor drink water, for he was mourning over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. 
And they made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. And that whoever would not come within three days, according to the counsel of the leaders and the elders, all his possessions should be forfeited, and he himself excluded from the assembly of the exiles. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and the heavy rain. So just as an aside here, specific day of a specific month. And we can trace back to the specific year that this happens because of that. And there they sit, out in the open, trembling because of what he's about to say. And then, of course, it's pouring down rain, but they're all sitting outside. Then Ezra the priest stood up, verse 10, and said to them, You have been unfaithful and have married foreign wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now, therefore, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will and separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, that's right. As you have said, so it is our duty to do. But there are many people. It is the rainy season, and we are not able to stand in the open, nor can the task be done in one or two days, for we have transgressed greatly in this matter. Let our leaders represent the whole assembly, and let all those in our cities who have married foreign wives come at appointed times, together with the elders and the judges of each city, till the fierce anger of our God on account of this matter is turned away from us. The fierce anger of God. 15. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel and Jeziah, the son of Tekva, opposed this, with Meshulam and Shebathiah, the Levites, supporting them. But the exiles did so, and Ezra the priest selected men who were heads of fathers' households for each of their fathers' households, all of them by name. So they convened on the first day of the tenth month to investigate the matter, and they finished investigating all the men who had married foreign wives by the first of the first month. And then he goes on to list all of those who had married foreign wives. Now we think, well, why, why is it important that we today know the names of all these people who have married these foreign wives? Because God wants us to know that people are held accountable for their sin. And he lists these names here for all eternity. Now, we've, we've seen in past times, do we, you know, would you like your dirty laundry hung out for everybody to read for the next two or 3,000 years? Hey, you want to know who sinned in Israel? Here's a good list of some of the people who have done that. Okay? So, it is distressing to see believers act in ways that go against the Word of God. It's distressing to see my own self when I go against the things of the Word of God. It's distressing when I see others and the consequences that that are involved in that. And sometimes, you know, immaturity plays a part in that. If if I was just a little bit more steeped in the word of God, I wouldn't have done those things. But because of my immaturity, I have sought those things. Or sometimes our emotions get the best of us and overwhelm us. And and sometimes it's just our will. This is what I want to do. And I know the Lord says it's wrong, but I just want to go and do it. But it's even worse when you see large groups of people who are supposed to know better go and openly pursue what the Lord has said not to do. So I'll give you a little bit more context, historic context for these two chapters here. Remember that God brought the people out 
of, of Israel in the Exodus. And hundreds of years later, this before the events here that are listed in Ezra, God told his people that if you break the covenant, if you are disobedient, there are going to be consequences. And I'm going to use other nations to punish you. Well, that's exactly what they did, and that's exactly what the Lord did. Um, they went and followed other gods despite the warnings from their prophets. And they followed the Baals and the Asherah poles. And they, they did all kinds of, of uh, terrible things. And the Lord was too, true to his promise. He used the Assyrians and he used the Babylonians to punish his people. If you remember in 722, the Assyrians came and they conquered the northern kingdom. And those ten tribes that were in the north, and it fell to the Assyrians. And then several centuries later, 586 BC, the Babylonians came and they destroyed Jerusalem because the people had been unfaithful. The Lord says, hey, I'm going to do this if you're unfaithful. And they went, great, we won't be unfaithful. But after a while, you know, those pagan gods, they really look good. Those pagan worship services, they're happening over there, and they're having a lot more fun than we're having. So let's go and try out what they're doing. And before you know it, they've forgotten the true God who has gotten them to where they are. And the Lord punishes them. So after the Babylonian invasion, there are 70 years when they are in exile and captivity. And for 70 years, the people are out of their land. Really, the only people who were left in the area of Jerusalem were the ones who, who kind of fell under the radar, uh, the very, very poor, the ones who were crippled or anything like that. So there's no real population there in Jerusalem until under Cyrus, the Persian ruler, because the Babylonians had decreased, the Persians had increased, he says, hey, or the prophet comes and says, can I go back to Jerusalem and build the walls? And he says, sure, go ahead. So the books of Ezra and then right next to it, Nehemiah, in, in the Hebrew Bible are one book because they tell one story. That is the people returning to Jerusalem, the spiritual uh, rebuilding and the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of the walls. Okay, You see more of the rebuilding of the walls, obviously, in Nehemiah. That's what he is known for. And the book of Ezra falls into two sections. The first six chapters deal with the return of the initial remnant under a guy named Zerubbabel in 538. There'll be a test in heaven on these dates, so make sure you remember them. Okay, So uh, he gets there and starts to rebuild stuff. And the people are not quite as excited about rebuilding stuff as he is. So it, it, they, there's opposition, and for 16 years, the project is abandoned. Okay, the project is abandoned. So during this time, it is the prophet, prophet Haggai and the prophet Zechariah who renew spiritually the people. And so the rebuilding begins again and is completed about 515. So at the end of chapter 6 into chapter 7, there is a 58-year gap that from the end of 6 to 7 in which the book of Esther happens. Okay? And you go, oh, now I'm starting to see the, a better picture of some of these things in the Old Testament. And at the beginning of chapter 7, this is 81 years after the original crowd under Zerubbabel returned to the Jerusalem, Ezra the priest comes and he leads another group of the exiles to Jerusalem. And what he finds is appalling. In this, this one and a half or two generations, the people of God have slid back into pagan worship. 
and, and have associated them with the pagan gods. And he gets there and one of the, they've assimilated with the people around them. And one of the things, obviously, is they have married foreign women. And it just is breaking his heart here. So we come to December of the year 456. As I said, remember, we can pick the day, we can pick the month and the year. Um, so four and a half months have elapsed, elapsed from the end of chapter 8 to chapter 9. And Ezra has been reading, he has been studying, he has been preaching the word of God from the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. So he has read those and he has challenged the people around him with the truth that is there and their hearts are beginning to change. You see, it is the proclamation of God's word that changes these people's hearts. And they begin to go, we can't live like this anymore. We can't have this blatant sin within the midst of, midst of our group. So what are we going to do? So some of the officials in verse nine of chapter, verse one of chapter nine, come with him, come to him with the news that some of the priests and some of the Levites, those would be the those would be the people who help in the temple. So that would be, if that would be like saying, you know, there, there's this group of pastors over here. And they're all in blatant sin, and they don't seem to care. And you know, the the choir directors and the organist, they're in blatant sin too, and they don't seem to care. What are we going to do about this? And and that's when he tears the hair out of his beard. He can't believe this is happening. can't believe it. And, And specifically what has happened is they have married foreign wives. And maybe the worst part of it is, is some of them have divorced their... Israelite wives, their wives of the covenant, and married foreign pagan wives. Now, um, he, I, I don't want you to think that it's only, bad, it's only bad to marry foreign women, and women, it's okay for you to marry foreign guys. That's, this is just the way that the culture is here, uh, because it was easy for men to divorce their wives and take on other wives at this time. So they had divorced their Israelite wives to marry Canaanite or, or, or whateverite wife. And in taking, and see, it's not just, I don't want you to get the idea that it's just the divorce he's talking about here and, and what they're doing and marrying foreign wives. Marriage is, is, is integral to our understanding of our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And especially in the Old Testament, God is the husband. Israel is the wife. And we see this played out again and again. When we get to the New Testament, Christ is the groom and the church is the bride. So we're not talking about just just like civil marriage or anything. We are talking about the deep theological truths uh, that marriage reflect, that marriage reflects. So basically what they are doing by marrying foreign wives, they are joining Yahweh with Baal. Okay? That's the theological implication here. They're taking the God of the covenant, the one true God, and joining him with a pagan idol. So that's the theological issue here. So all these folks who have come back from Babylon and have witnessed, or at least they, their parents or their grandparents, have witnessed this great mercy from God to restore them from the exile and bring them back to Jerusalem. Here and they've seen the hand of favor on them by, by the Lord, and said, You're, "You were disobedient. Now I'm going to restore you." 
I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to give you a chance to, to live in the holy city again and be here. And, and, and you are to separate yourselves and be holy. And Ezra says, you know, they, they just look like they did before. What is going on here? What has happened here? There's no holiness. There's no separateness. And especially the, the spiritual leadership has taken on this. And they're all involved in this flagrant sin. So what is Ezra's response to it? Ezra, Ezra has an appropriate response to it. And we see this in plenty of other places in, in, in the Old Testament in particular where they sit in ashes and they tear their clothes. And, and it, it is a sign of mourning because they're, just, they're simply broken over this sin. And, and I want you to understand, Ezra has not participated in this sin. But he, as the spiritual leader of the people, looks at their sin and goes, how could we do this? And the language is reflective of this. He's not saying how you could do this. He says, how could we, as God's people, drift so far away from what he said is right? So he tears his clothes and and they sit and he's joined with others. Look at verse 3. And when I, of chapter 9, and when I heard this matter, I tore my garment, my robe, I pulled some of my hair from my head, I pulled my beard out, I sat down appalled. Then everyone, and this is key, who trembled at the words of the God of Israel. Because he had been teaching the word of God. And their hearts were filled with fear because they said, man, we are in sin as a people and we could be in big, big trouble. So Ezra is overcome with guilt here, and it's a collective guilt, as I said. It's not just it's not as if Ezra has done this, but he he feels this from the people who have done this. Now Israel has a history of 150 years from when they were kicked out, and all of the time that they were in exile, and now they get back here, and all of a sudden there is this brief moment of grace. Look at verse eight. But now for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us as an escaped remnant, to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. This is, the Lord says here, I'm going to give you the moment. What are you going to do with it? And they get there and then they find... Something better, they think, in their own minds. A remnant has returned. God has kept his promise, but the people fall away so very quickly. And Ezra goes to the Lord in prayer. And and really, if I had to sum up, what does Ezra pray for? It comes to one word, mercy. He prays for mercy. Lord, have mercy on these people have mercy upon us because Ezra understands all too well what the people deserve and he wants something that they don't deserve from the Lord and that would be his mercy so flip over to chapter 10 and this is the major issue They've married outside of the faith. It, it doesn't talk about anything about, we're not, not dealing with race or, or anything like that. We're talking about marrying outside of the faith. When he talks about foreign women, we're talking about pagan women. And maybe they did it for social advancement. Maybe they did it for economic gain. Maybe they did because they thought their wives were getting too old and, and I want a younger model. It, it really doesn't matter what the reason was. They have sinned. Now, in Scripture, we understand that some things are descriptive. And some things are prescriptive. This is a descriptive moment. 
Okay? It describes in an accurate, infallible, and inerrant fashion what happened here. It is not prescriptive for our behavior today. It is not as if you can leave here going, you know, I think Randy just gave us the official theological okay to ditch our wives and marry a new model. No, that's not what he's saying. Okay, that's not what is here. And in fact, Paul makes it clear in Corinthians that, you know, if you are married to an unbeliever, if you have, uh, maybe you came to Christ after your marriage and your spouse did not, if, if your spouse stays with you, you are not to divorce them just because they don't believe. You are to stay married to them. Okay? Paul makes that very clear. So the question for us as we look at this, because this is, this is drastic. Is, this, is Ezra right here? I mean, is this a good thing? He, I mean, or, or does Ezra just go off the reservation and say, you've got to get rid of these girls? Or was he right in what he said? We have to go into the context uh, of, of Ezra just a little bit here. Uh, and notice that, uh, look at verse 3, because it's, it's a little bit more complex than just sending these women home. Verse 3 of chapter 10. So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children. Okay, and their children. So there are children involved here. And, and, and just imagine the, the wailing and the screaming um, where Ezra says, hey, these, these ladies, these kids, they're all going back to their families in their pagan lands. You know, how would you like somebody to come in and tear your wife and children away from you and say they've got to go, that they've got to go? Now, they wouldn't be a way to send, for, to fend, send away to fend for themselves. They would be sent back to their families, okay? But still, they're going to be torn away from their father because of this. So there are huge significant problems here. Uh, and, and the Bible does not address those issues okay, for this specific reason. It's very important, as, as I'm convinced as I read this and study this, this is the reason. The, the Bible and, and this, this illustration from Ezra is concerned with the principle. It's not concerned with sentiment. It is concerned with the principle here, not with the sentiment. Uh, it's not as if Ezra is not attuned to the, you know, with a compassionate heart what is going on here, but the principle is much larger and has to be dealt with. Now, there are only 110 or 113 names, depending upon how you read the Hebrew here, and there are probably 30,000 men. So are we talking about a lot? We're not really talking about a lot of people here. We're talking about a small portion who have involved themselves in sin, but yet so many of them should have known better. So many of them are spiritual leaders, and they are to set the tone for all of the people here. The sin is marrying outside of the faith, outside of the covenant people of God. They should not have done this. Now, whether we're in in agreement about how Ezra uh, ends this or not, that's another matter. But the issue and the principle behind it is God's command and the people's failure to be obedient. People's failure to be obedient. There are 17 priests involved in this. There are six Levites involved with this. There's a singer involved with this. There are gatekeepers. There are 83, 84 lay people who have done this and involved themselves in this sin. But the sin 
of a few. What's the old song? No, no, that's not the right song. Uh, The sin of a few affects everybody. Paul says, what, a little bit of leaven? Leaven's the whole lump. And what happens is within the covenant people, they've come back, they have this moment, the remnant has returned. If they leave this blatant sin in the midst of their lives, in the midst of their covenant family, it's just going to spread and go further and further and further. We see this in the story of um, uh, Achan, where his, his sin affects the battle, the next battle. We see this in Ananias and Sapphira that we read earlier. Paul writes about this in Galatians. He writes about this in Corinthians. Um, we are the people of God, and the failure of one invariably affects the entire community. One person leading a life of blatant sin who is not challenged, who is not uh, confronted with it and encouraged to repent and, and, and shown the way, that can infect everybody. Well, he does it. Why can't I do it? Well, it's not so bad because I'm not as bad as so-and-so. There's one prevailing issue for Ezra, and that's Holiness. The holiness of God's people. That's what he is concerned about. The people of God cannot take on the values and the mores of the world in which they live. They have to take on the values and mores of God's word. A.W. Tozer said, The best place for a ship is in the sea. But woe betide it when the sea gets in the ship. The people of God are meant to be in the world. The world is not meant to be in the people of God. The Lord calls us to live holy lives in the midst of a pagan world around us. And that means we can't allow ourselves to think that the future of Christianity or the future of the church uh, is, is, is to look more like the world so we can get along more with the world and the world will think better of us. The word of God is the power of God unto salvation. That is what the world needs. The world is dying and the world is, 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 is being smothered by their own love of their own selves and, and, and their own running away from the Lord. This is what changes their lives. When they hear the word of God, when they see it lived out before them. And if we don't do it, it's not going to happen. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, your, your word is, is clear here. Yes, there are things that, that, that we might think sound very hard. Really, you're going to kick out, you know, dissect these families and, and separate them. But holiness demands action. Heavenly Father, in, in our lives today, we know that you've put us in this world. And that's where we are supposed to be. But we are not to let that world so infuse itself into us that we begin to look too much like it and less like Christ. We are to infuse the word of Christ into our hearts and our minds, to read it, to study it, to be challenged by it, so that we understand how you call us to live, that the world might look at us and see something different in us. Yes, we're going to be different than the world. Because holiness is different from what the world desires. Heavenly Father, remind us that you just don't call us to lives of holiness. 
You just don't call us to lives of purity, but you empower us to do so as well. You give us the strength. You give us the tools necessary to achieve. Might we be obedient? Might we be humble? Might we rejoice in holy living? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.